Hello and welcome to this Latrobe Asia webinar, Modern Day Slavery and Human Trafficking in Asia. I'm Beck Strading, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University in Melbourne, Australia. I would like to begin this event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which Latrobe University sits. I would also like to pay respects to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to any Indigenous Australians who might be watching this webinar this afternoon. Part of our role at La Trobe Asia is to engage the public in thoughtful discussion and debate and to deepen our understanding and our knowledge of the Asian region. Human trafficking is an urgent human security issue in Asia. Stories of abuse and exploitation associated with human trafficking and modern-day slavery have been documented across a range of sectors. The offshore fishing industry, for instance, is beset by extreme cases of forced labour and human trafficking, exploiting migrant workers from Indonesia, the Philippines, Cambodia and Myanmar. And with countries like Australia benefiting from the import of this seafood only fueling the problem. La Trobe University recently appointed Dr Sally Yeh as the 2021 Tracy Vanavanuama Principal Fellow. As part of her research fellowship, Dr Yeh will be researching these critical areas of human trafficking and modern-day slavery in the global seafood industry, as well as in other sectors in Asia. So in this event, we will critically unpack key issues of modern-day slavery and human trafficking. To what extent is this a problem in Asia and Australia? What factors drive or enable human trafficking and modern-day slavery? And importantly, what can be done about it, particularly in terms of preventing its incidents and providing justice to victims? So I am delighted to be joined by our esteemed panel of experts to unpack these issues. Uh, first, Dr Sally Yeh uh, joins us today from Melbourne, uh, where in addition to her fellowship, she is also an Associate Professor and Human Geographer in the Department of Social Inquiry at La Trobe University. Welcome, Sally. We are also delighted to be joined by Jenny Stanger, who is the Executive Manager of the Anti-Slavery Task Force at the Catholic Archdiocese of Sydney and Australian Catholic Anti-Slavery Network. Jenny has wide experience on anti-slavery issues in Australia and the United States and is a member of the Australian Government's National Roundtable on Human Trafficking and Slavery and Modern Slavery Expert Advisory Group. Thank you for joining us from Sydney today, Jenny. And last but not least, we have Sunil Rao, who is a lecturer in law at La Trobe University, who specialises in business and human rights. Sunil has been appointed to the Law Council of Australia, Business and Human Rights Committee, and Australian Government Modern Slavery Expert Advisory Group. Welcome, Sunil, it's great to have you here as well. Now, we will have time for Q&A in the second half of the webinar, for which we will be using the Q&A function. So please uh, do pop your questions in the Q&A box as we go through, uh, and I will be um, chairing the Q&A in the second half of the webinar. But first, I would like to start with you, Sally. Uh, it's terrific to have you uh, in this position uh, with your fellowship uh, our, our audience members might have a particular idea from media reporting or, um, you know, other sort of cultural products about what slavery and human traffic 
the human trafficking entails or constitutes. But I thought we might start the webinar by trying to unpack what we mean by human trafficking and modern day slavery. Are these terms different and related? And what types of sectors are implicated? Thanks, Beck. Um, thanks for organising this webinar to La Trobe Asia and for bringing together such a wonderful panel of speakers and uh, the opportunity to discuss critically this really important subject today. Um, I think, you know, we could probably spend an hour just talking about definitions of human trafficking and modern day slavery. So I'll perhaps try and just give a very brief overview um, of those terms. So human trafficking or, or trafficking in persons is, is a very distinct term. Um, the main definition comes from the United Nations Protocol on Human Trafficking, which was developed in 2000. And according to the protocol, human trafficking basically involves three elements which must be present together in order for the crime of human trafficking to take place. So that, that is the, the means, the act and the purpose. Um, so the means uh, generally refer to things like uh, fraud or abduction or deception, deceptive recruitment, uh, coercion, ways in which people uh, are brought into a situation of human trafficking. Um, the, the act is basically what's involved in moving someone into that situation of exploitation. So how they're recruited, how they're moved, whether they're harboured somewhere, um, or, and transferred between different parties and then ultimately to the site where they're deployed in a situation of exploitation. And the purpose is, is really quite simple and that's just exploitation. And, of course, there are a range of different uh, types of exploitation, some of which are mentioned in the UN protocol, um, but the, it's not an exhaustive list. So that would include things like uh, prostitution, other types of sexual exploitation, forced labour, uh, removal of organs and so on. So, you know, human trafficking then, I guess, is, is really quite a distinct uh, activity and a, a crime. And many countries around the world now have legislation, have developed legislation um, pursuant to the UN protocol, which criminalises human trafficking. And most countries base their legislation broadly on the definition contained in the UN protocol. I think when we talk about modern day slavery, um, it's a slightly broader term than human trafficking. And really it describes situations of extreme exploitation. Um, and, you know, that could include human trafficking, it could include forced labour, it could include uh, child labour, early marriages, forced marriages and so on. So, you know, modern day slavery is, is very much a, a, a term that's used in common parlance, I guess, and 
quite distinct in many senses from historical ideas uh, of slavery and historical forms of slavery, um, particularly, you know, I guess we can contrast modern slavery with chattel slavery in that these days, uh, you know, formal ownership of a slave is, is illegal, um, is outlawed in, in every country of the world, really. Um, so we want to make sure that we distinguish between traditional chattel forms of slavery and, and its modern variants. So, yeah, that's, that's just a very quick overview then, I think, of those two terms. So uh, with the sort of the, the, the second part of the question of the types of sectors that are implicated, because your research mm -hmm. in particular focuses on the fishing industry, and that's not an industry that um, perhaps uh, a lot of us think about when we think about modern day slavery and human trafficking. Mm. Yeah, so well, when I started doing research on human trafficking quite a long time ago, uh, my research was on... Uh, trafficking for commercial sexual exploitation. And so that was in the early 2000s uh, where I looked at the trafficking of women primarily around US military bases in South Korea. Um, and at that time, I think in the early to mid 2000s, most people understood human trafficking as being associated with the sex industry, with commercial sexual exploitation. And it's really only been, I think, in the last probably 10 years or so uh, that there has been a more vocal call for understanding types of exploitation that occur outside the sex industry. Um, and the International Labour Organisation uh, has played quite a large role in advocating for the importance uh, of looking at a variety of different forms of human trafficking beyond sexual exploitation and also beyond a focus on women and children. Um, so the seafood sector, the, the global fishing industry is one of those areas that has begun to be highlighted um, much more recently, along with forced labour in sectors like construction, uh, agriculture, plantations, um, the garment industry is one that's a major focus of many advocacy campaigns going on in Australia at the moment. So really there are, there are a huge range uh, of sectors where human trafficking occurs. Um, and, you know, again, we could spend the whole webinar just kind of list, listing off and reeling off different sectors where, where we do see um, modern-day slavery and human trafficking. But for me at the moment, the focus of my research is primarily um, on the, the global fishing industry. And uh, I'm also looking quite critically at the moment uh, at organ trafficking, which when we think about modern-day slavery, uh, I think one of the, the things is that... Uh, Discussions of organ trafficking tend to fall off the edge uh, when we sort of turn to the language of modern-day slavery because modern-day slavery is, is really more about labour exploitation. Um, so for me, continuing to make sure that organ trafficking is 
is highlighted uh, and just critically discussed and researched is, is also quite important. Um, and particularly given COVID um, at the moment, there is increasing evidence uh, of, uh, again, a rise or a flux in organ trafficking cases uh, in certain regions of the world. So I, I think that's, that's also an area that's worth uh, documenting and continuing to consider in research in future. Mm. Well, before I turn to our other panellists, I just wanted to get uh, your sense briefly of the, the sort of the principal driving factors uh, that underpin the continuance or the, the modern day slavery and the continuance of human trafficking across these industries. Mm. Well, I think, I mean, I guess primarily I can talk to research that I've conducted and what I've found in my own work. Um, and, and what I tend to, to say is that normally someone, if, if they're trafficked, um, it's not because of one single factor. There's usually a combination of different factors at play. Some of those may be structural. Some of those might be situational. Um, so we might say, you know, COVID is a situational factor at the moment. Um, and some of them might be personal. Um, but I think, you know, the, the important point is that it, it's very rare that someone uh, would be moved into a situation of extreme exploitation because of one single factor. Um, and I also think that, you know, even though we often first think of poverty as the key driver or key cause of human trafficking, um, in fact, I think poverty as a factor is often overstated. Um, and if it is, important, it's, it's often more uh, issues of inequality um, or lack of opportunity um, rather than, you know, situations of extreme poverty as a cause of human trafficking. I think at the moment, um, you know, gender-based gender violence, gendered inequality, um, lack of opportunities, as I've said for, for decent work, um, they're, they're really important factors. I think COVID, the impact of COVID is something that will be critically looked at as a driver over the next few years. And something that I'm, I've just started looking at in my own research is the impact of climate change and displacement uh, as a result of climate change and the, the relationship that that has to uh, as a key driver for human trafficking. I might bring you into the conversation, Jenny. Uh, in your view, why has modern-day slavery remained such a complex and persistent international issue? Uh, why why uh, does it remain uh, such a, a sort of intractable problem? And does it mean that governments and international community or businesses are not doing enough uh, to try to deal with the problem, or is it more complex than that? Okay. <clears throat> Can I just, I do want to go back a little bit to what Sally was talking about when we talked about definitions, because I do think it, it is important for us to kind of answer your question, but also to us, for us to unpack that a little bit, because I think, you know, on this panel, if you had um, a CEO from a large, you know, Modern Slavery Act reporting entity, a women's rights activist, um, someone like myself, a union secretary and a police officer, um, 
you know, answering that question, like what is, what constitutes human trafficking and modern slavery? I think you would get a big variety uh, in terms of an answer to that question. And I do think even after all these years, there's still to some degree is lack of agreement about what constitutes um, this, you know, modern slavery umbrella term and what are the elements. Um, and that has real consequences, right? For people who are caught up in all kinds of exploitation. And so I think it is important to note that the terms are sort of elastic. I mean, human trafficking as defined in the protocol is defined. When we talk about modern slavery, it, it's quite an elastic term and it means different things to different people. And you know whether that's an organization or a business or a government um, or workers themselves, or, or vulnerable people themselves, I think we do need to be mindful of how people are using that term and what it, it means to them because it's gonna help inform what they do about it. Um, and for the last 30 years, really, so I've been involved in this work for about 20 to 25 years, for the last 30 years, um, human trafficking and modern slavery have been framed in ways that really don't help the vast majority of people who are trapped in systemic exploitative labor across the world. Um, and it's those people who can easily be pushed into more extreme forms of abuse. And so this has you know, become this like feature of our global economy. So we've, we've kind of, you know, and because as Sally highlighted, the, the human anti-human trafficking movement, you know, stems from the UN protocol, that protocol was attached to the Convention on Transnational Organized Crime which, you know, it didn't come from a human rights body. It comes from uh, an organized crime body, which has resulted in a global approach to this issue as a criminal justice issue, which, you know, like I, it, it, in a way has been a real disservice to this big band of people um, who work and in sweat and toil um, in the economy, um, in our global economy. Um, and, you know, it's that situation that paves the way for the 40 million people who have wound up in more extreme forms of, of exploitation that we are calling modern slavery. So um, I do think it is important to recognize this kind of elasticity. And even in our own Modern Slavery Act inquiry here in Australia, you know, this stuff has played out here. You know, we've had so much of this um, uh, play out on the landscape here and the elasticity of the term right here in our own country has crossed into all of these sectors and issues that Sally has mentioned. You know, forced marriage has become a very high priority for the Australian government and forced marriage crimes are included in the Commonwealth Criminal Code under the same division as all the other slavery crimes. There's, you know, there's an organ uh, trafficking offense in Australia. We've the, the inquiry uh, covered the trafficking of children into orphanages overseas. Um, so, you know, and, and online child sexual exploitation. Um, and then again, you know, Sally talked about how this uh, kind of really the first probably 15 years of the anti-trafficking movement focused on the sex industry. Um, and yet, you know, there is still big disagreement again, when we're trying to define what is and what isn't slavery. For some people, all sex work is inherently a form of slavery and for others, it's free, it can be freely chosen. So um, we still grapple with these issues and I think um, 
uh, you know, courts and juries and judges still grapple with these issues. And I think it's really important to understand that um, even amongst the NGO sector, so that's where I've spent my time um, in, this sec in this space is in the NGO sector and, and amongst NGOs, there may, you know, be quite a wide variety or disagreement around what constitutes what. Mm. So, um, yeah, and so obviously I think, um, you know, uh, there's quite a lot that remains to be done and the reasons that, the reason that this really probably has been flourishing. I mean, I think the stats are, are disturbing and concerning and they will change again. Um, and COVID will have a big impact on how the next round of statistics uh, emerge from the Global Slavery Index whenever the, the next index is coming out. Um, but it really is, uh, you know, we have had this unchecked um, rampant, you know, exploitation of people um, all over the world. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I'm really interested in how we can advance labor rights and labor standards for that really large band so that we can stop that, that kind of tap of people being pushed um, over the line into more extreme forms of, of exploitation. Well, I'm glad that you uh, raised your position uh, in an NGO because they do seem to play a critical role. Uh, so can you maybe give us an overview or an explanation of the roles that NGOs, civil society organisations play in the anti-slavery movement? And I think one of the things that our audience members might be interested in is what we can do as individuals to contribute to the anti-slavery movement. Um, well, for me, um, I mean, I started out in this space, honestly, just as a concerned citizen in Los Angeles a number of years ago when we had a, a huge um, human trafficking case involving garment workers working for top American retailers um, who were found in a sweatshop behind barbed wire and, be, and under armed guard. And some of them had been making clothes and, um, you know, garments uh for up to seven years without any pay. Um, I, I started out in this space as a concerned citizen when I saw that on the front page of the newspaper in my own community. And in fact, the community where my dad grew up. Um, so I think, um, and it was NGOs who kind of, I would say blew the lid off of that case and brought that case to the authorities and advocated for that case to be handled not as a case involving illegal immigrants, um, but as a, a case that involved victims of a really serious crime. So I think, you know, NGOs can play uh, such an important role in helping all of us to understand um, what's going on on the ground. They can bring, they have their own framing. Obviously, NGOs have their own framing um, of these issues. Um, and they're a really critical link between workers and people on the ground who are suffering and being abused and the policymakers and decision makers who can, who can create change. Obviously NGOs also have a really big role in um, providing um, protection and support for victims. I've spent the vast majority of my career doing that. Um, I, uh, in addition to starting an organization in the United States with my colleagues, 
Um, I also ran uh, the only refuge for victims of human trafficking and slavery right here in Australia for the Salvation Army, and it's still the only refuge in the country. Um, so really important because I think also, um, you know, NGOs can truly look after the victims first um, and, and truly work from a, a place that recognizes the trauma that, that they have experienced um, and, you know, and can really be out there to look, look after their interests. And obviously our, you know, um, lawyer friends who help, help us, um, you know, are important in that space as well. So I think we can provide, you know, a comprehensive culturally appropriate support and protection to, pe to people. And again, help identify those gaps in protection and support for policymakers, um, especially if the policymakers are providing some of the, the funds um, to ensure that protection is, is available. So um, look, I think NGOs are, you know, one step away from the workers are kind of like the heart and soul of, of keeping things moving forward um, and keeping, keeping some accountability um, on the part of uh, particularly governments. Um, and, you know, obviously NGOs, you know, need a lot of support to keep going. So I would encourage people to, to find an NGO that aligns with your values and interests. Um, if you can volunteer, if you can support them in any way, uh, that's much appreciated. Um, I've personally had to raise most of the dollars uh, that, that have um, enabled me to do my work and it's, it's, it's tough. So we need people to back us and we need businesses to back us and we need allies. Incredibly important work, but it seems like a good time to consult our lawyer on the panel. So Sunil, I might uh, turn to you. We've heard a little bit about uh, Australia and uh, the incidents of modern day slavery in Australia. So in your view, what's the extent of the problem uh, in Australia and what can the Australian government uh, do better? Good afternoon, everyone. Um, well, Beck, it really is it's really a difficult question um, to answer because there really is limited data or reliable data on the prevalence, particularly um, in Australia. Um, I, I do note that uh, a few years ago in 2018, the Australian government did announce its intention to um, um, uh, bring forth a, a national estimate um, that still um, is a work in progress um, at the moment. I guess the best estimates that we have um, come from the Walk Free uh, Foundation um, and the Australian Institute of Criminology. And their research um, sets out that there's approximately around 1,900 uh, victims of modern slavery um, in Australia currently. Um, but that research also indicates that for every unidentified, uh, sorry, for every victim that is identified, there's an additional four victims that remain unidentified. Um, it's also, I think, important to note has as Jenny um, has touched upon that those numbers, given the impact of um, COVID-19, will undoubtedly change um, when a revised um, estimate comes, comes forth. So in terms of uh, providing justice, I mean, in your view, what can be done, uh, whether it's in Australia or in Asia or even internationally, in a legal sense to try to both prevent modern-day slavery, prevent... Um, incidents of human trafficking, but to also provide justice to victims of human trafficking? I think one of the uh, key things, particularly when we look at the um, Australian context, um, again, Jenny mentioned uh, briefly that we have, you know, relatively strong uh, criminal laws. Um, 
that cover a wide range of exploitative practices and the coercive elements behind those um, as well. Um, they also apply in a, uh, to businesses in certain circumstances um, as well. Um, but one of the areas uh, I think the government really needs to, to focus on is really the victim identification um, process that was borne out by the um, Hidden in Plain Sight report in 2017 that eventually led to our um, Modern Slavery Act. There's a lot of uh, a lack of coordination between uh, federal agencies and state and territory um, agencies. There's a lot of um, coupling that goes on uh, between trafficking and migration, um, and that results in a lot of victims remaining unidentified because they're being viewed by law enforcement uh, through the migration uh, compliance spectrum. Um, and, and this was also borne out um, also in the most recent Trafficking in Persons report um, in, in 2020. Um, as Sally touched upon some of those um, industries and sectors, uh, both in offshore sea-based settings and onshore, particularly in horticulture, agriculture, even in um, domestic uh, service, um, law enforcement are not appropriately trained on those sector-specific um, indicators that will enable them to um, identify victims. When we look at what's happening, happening um, globally, um, you know, given the, the impact of COVID-19, it, it's undoubtable that that's had a, and will have um, a significant impact on the number of people that move into exploitative um, circumstances. So one of the things uh, that I think is really important is to revisit um, there's a forced labour protocol um, uh, uh, that came into force in 2016, and it really does set out um, a number of specific uh, requirements by states in terms of protection, um, in terms of prosecution, um, in terms of rehabilitation, in terms of um, effective remedies um, for victims. Uh, to date, there's only been, I think, around 50-odd countries um, that have signed up to that particular uh, protocol. Um, and when we look at uh, countries that we know um, historically and from previous estimates have a higher prevalence of modern slavery, countries like India, Bangladesh, Nepal, Pakistan, they have not um, signed up to this particular protocol. It's really important because um, it requires states to have a national policy and also a national plan of action. And it covers, um, as I said, those criminal justice aspects, victim protection and effective remedies. It also has provisions in there for states to make regulations in relation to public and private businesses and um, an expectation that they undertake due diligence um, in their operations um, and in their supply chains. So I think that is a, an incredibly powerful instrument. Um, and I, th I think it's sort of been forgotten amongst all of the, um, the regulations that are, are coming up. So we, uh, we will head into Q&A. So please do put your questions in the Q&A box. But before we do that, Sally, I want to come back to you because a lot of your research is really centred on justice uh, and centred on the individuals uh, who have been sort of uh, exploited uh, through uh, human trafficking and modern-day slavery, particularly with the focus on Asia. So I'm wondering whether you can tell me about um, the challenges or the gaps or the barriers for things like victim identification, for uh, comp compensation, uh, for providing justice to victims? 
Yeah, thanks, Beck. Um, uh, look, I think before answering that question and, and sort of leading into it, um, I want to pick up uh, on what Jenny has said about, you know, the bulk, um, the large majority of people who are severely exploited uh, but who will never be classified or identified as victims of trafficking. And this is something that I have seen across contexts, across national contexts. Um, so, you know, I mean, I've worked in, in Singapore, in, in South Korea, the Philippines, um, Cambodia, Bangladesh, and the, the number of people who I interview for my research who tick all the boxes, so to speak, in terms of indicators of trafficking, um, I would say that less than 1% of those people who've been involved in my research have ever been formally identified as victims of trafficking. And so... Um, I, I came up with this term, as academics are prone to do, <laughs> to, to describe this, and, and I call it banal exploitation or normal exploitation. And really the idea here is that um, increasingly and quite worryingly, I see that certain forms of exploitation uh, really go almost unnoticed. In other words, they're not seen uh, as, as severe, they're, they're accepted, um, they're generally accepted. And, you know, so if someone isn't paid their wages for three months uh, and they don't feel that they're in a, in, in a position to be able to leave their place of employment and, and maybe they're subject to threats uh, or some kind of verbal abuse, um, you know, it's often seen as, as not uh, a situation that's relevant or that it doesn't qualify as a situation of human trafficking because it's not severe enough. And I think that that is also a legacy of the early days following the UN protocol when there was this real focus on very severe cases of exploitation, particularly in the sex industry. Um, and that, that sort of breaking that um, association has, has formed a large part of my work over sort of the last 10 years is, is to really critically unpack those representations and the stereotypes uh, that only certain types of victims, um, you know, that, that fit in a very narrow criteria um, are really legitimate victims and legitimate in the eyes of the government and the state um, and those who are charged with victim identification. So for me, that really is a very big and ongoing concern. And I think that that does tie into, you know, sort of first responders or law enforcement um, and even some NGOs who are often in a situation or a position where they are able to undertake uh, victim identification. Um, but, you know, these preconceived ideas of what a model victim uh, is or should look like 
can really influence um, the way that those first responders um, identify and then classify uh, people in particular situations. And again, in my own research, one of the really worrying things uh, is that many people who, who fit the criteria uh, for a victim of trafficking are still criminalised. Uh, and so, you know, as immigration offenders, uh, for labour rights violations, and in the fishing industry, increasingly what I'm finding is that trafficked fishermen are being criminalised for their involvement uh, in IUU fishing. Um, and so, you know, we have this situation where people who are in these extreme and severe cases of exploitation are not only going unidentified but are also in many cases being criminalised um, or and or being deported um, and returned to their, their home country, you know, without necessary supports um, and, and often in really extreme situations of vulnerability, on, ongoing vulnerability once they return home. Uh, and of course, that is, that's a context in which re-trafficking is, is likely to occur. I'm not sure answered your question, Beck, but <laughs> well, I'm glad that you uh, you moved into some of the issues around criminalization of um, migrant fishers because some of our questions relate to this. And uh, Alfonso has asked a question about too many people being trafficked are treated as criminals and not victims and whether there are any solutions to this problem. But as a sort of side question to that, uh, there's also a question about whether or, or the extent to which uh, traffickers might be actually assisted by government officials and whether there's any evidence that uh, governments are taking on that issue. So I might start with you on that one, Sally. Um, well, I think, you know, it's, it's difficult to know what goes on in a police station or, uh, you know, a, an immigration agent's office uh, when they are questioning uh, people who've who've come out of these situations. I mean, you know, what questions are they asking? Are there are there protocols that are being followed? Um, you know, are there uh, a sort of lists of, of indicators and and questions that um, that personnel are asking uh, people in 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 order to enhance uh, victim identification? Are there signs that are being looked for um, or, or are they not? And, and why not? Is it because of a lack of capacity? Is it because not the right people uh, are being uh, trained? Uh, is it because there's a persistent underlying view or stereotype, particularly of migrants, as, you know, non-citizens and therefore as non-citizens uh, they don't deserve the same rights and protections uh, as citizen subjects. So, you know, there are a huge number of possibilities here that, that we might consider. Um, there are also, I think, uh, factors, you know, that tie into this issue about criminalisation or non-identification of victims, um, which relate to government's political interests. Um, and we know that many states, uh, you know, don't want to have 
5,000 or 10,000 or 20,000 victims of trafficking identified in, in their country. So, you know, we have to think about the tensions here, the political tensions, I think, that go beyond issues of logistics and capacity uh, and the practicalities of, of um, understanding people's situations to, to looking at what the political economy of human trafficking, if you like, and what kind of role that might play in the non-identification or the criminalisation um, of certain people that may well deserve protections. Um, and, of course, to look in that, at that in a lot of detail, I think, really requires looking um, across context and looking in a lot of detail at particular contexts because it's not going to play out uh, the same everywhere. Absolutely. And Jenny, I'd love your views on this issue, but I might also uh, throw a question to you at the same time, if I may. Uh, so this is from Ebony, uh, who says that uh, studying last year, she saw a lot of people in the comments of documentary videos who were angry because what they were seeing didn't agree with their perception of exploitation. They couldn't understand people agreeing to sell their organs or taking a job could still be exploitation as opposed to being kidnapped in dark alleys like in the movies. So uh, she wonders that if the public was more aware of the complex situations, could that help in a meaningful way? Yeah, absolutely. And, and just dovetailing again on what Sally said around this sort of, um, you know, the initial kind of thrust of the whole movement over the first like decade where the focus was pretty much mostly on uh, women and children in the, working in the sex industry, you know, there was sort of this archetype that was created of who's deserving of help and support and kind of breaking through that um, over time. I, actually, it hasn't happened, right? Even in Australia, um, you know, the way I like to describe it is you find what you're looking for, right? So what we did in Australia and in other countries for the first 10 to 15 years, we, we went and we devoted time, energy and resources and designed um, a framework to disrupt and detect and protect women and children working in the sex industry. And that became sort of a, a formula, um, the way of doing things. And that was who we saw as victims. And that's where this kind of stereotype and, type and archetype comes from of who, who's deserving um, and who's legitimate. And, and I think, you know, when our own criminal code uh, finally changed in 2014, you know, we didn't have a forced labor offense until 2014. And this is, I mean, I had been here well over, well, for exactly 10 years and was bringing cases to the government of domestic servitude. Some of you may remember the Four Corners show about domestic servitude in um, embassies in Canberra. Those were cases that, you know, that we brought to the government, cases of domestic servitude in the community. There has been a case of trafficking for the purpose of organ removal in Australia. So, um, but, you know, it's, to date, really, there haven't been any forced labor prosecutions in spite of kind of a rampant exploitation that is going on every day across this country. As, I mean, you know, what, what Sally is describing in the context of other countries, it actually applies to Australia too. What is happening during an assessment with the federal police and a potential victim? Um, what is the methodology being used to either positively or negatively decide? And then count that person into the statistics that Sunil's talking about. 
um, victim identification here is embarrassingly low. It's very low um, and this needs to be addressed. Um, so, okay, I might have sort of lost track of, of, of the question there, but yes, it's complex. People are complex. Um, the, we're talking about human beings who have agency and make choices. Um, sometimes they make choices we think they shouldn't make, or we make those choice. They make choices we wish they didn't make, but they make them, right? And sometimes it puts them in a situation where they're incredibly vulnerable and maybe victims of a really serious crime. So, to answer Ebony's question, um, yeah, I think it's it's worthwhile to kind of go into the literature. So when I first started this work, there was no literature. <laughs> like you'll go onto the internet, which was also new. Uh, to find out about human trafficking. And all you could get was some stories about Eastern European women being trafficked into the sex industry in Western Europe after the Berlin Wall came down. You know, Now there's so much information out there, you actually have to wade through the garbage. There is actual garbage and you need to filter. Um, but you know, uh, I think probably listening to survivors and um, trying to find out a little bit more about their experiences from, from them um, is also a, a, a good thing, um, not just for average people wanting to learn more, but for all of us. Um, I was gonna kind of show you all that, you know, the government does have a new national action plan to combat uh, modern slavery um, for the next five years. And, um, I think it is important to acknowledge the actual tremendous amount of work that has gone on in Australia, um, especially over the last few years, like a really small team of people in government and, and some very fired up ministers have pumped out a lot of work. Um, and the new national action plan really is the roadmap uh, for the next five years. And there are some you know, we've got to acknowledge that there are some real highlights to it as well. And I'm really happy to see the inclusion of survivor voices and that government is interested for the first time ever in listening to survivors. Um, so I think we, we will all benefit from that um, if we can create um, safe and appropriate ways, uh, you know, to engage because they're the experts, right? And, and a measure of our success will be if we have this same webinar in two years and there are empowered and supported and paid survivors sitting alongside us, you know, telling, telling us what we should be doing and informing the response and highlighting the complexity of their own experience um, because survivor experiences are not archetypal or stereotypical either. They are wide ranging um, and there is no one survivor experience either. So I guess to answer Ebony's question is, you know, dive in. It takes years to, to learn about this stuff and I'm, I'm still learning every day too. I think we should take a note of the date, come back in two years. It sounds like a challenge or a call to arms uh, and see where we're at uh, with the, the National Action Plan. But Sunil, I might uh, ask you about your thoughts on the National Action Plan, but we also have a question from Jamina about um, how sending and receiving countries can cooperate against trafficking when one of the core definitional questions, which relates to the extent to which prostitution overlaps with trafficking, is a matter of heated debate 
resulting in very different laws and how can these uh, different views be productively aligned and uh, aligned sorry and I guess that's not just a, a question uh, for prostitution and trafficking but also for the range of different laws that might um, and, and definitions that come into modern day slavery as well as the different agencies that are involved in trying to mitigate the issues so do you have any thoughts on that? That's a really great question. Um, thinking from a practical perspective, I, I think what needs to, um, particularly with the sending and receiving states, it really comes down to um, the level of assistance that they provide to each other. Um, so one of the things from a, um, I guess, a legal point of view that you can actually advocate for or it is really to have those mutual legal assistance laws, the domestic laws in each country, um, pretty much brought up to scratch. Um, and it's simple things. There's a number of countries out there that still don't have, you know, human trafficking as one of the crimes or potential offences for which there will be mutual legal assistance that's offered. Um, I guess some of the other things, um, if you take it outside of the legal um, perspective is also the, the communication between law enforcement across different jurisdictions um, as well. Um, that has to be coordinated um, and there has to be, you know, collaboration um, from those practical um, aspects. Um, when we're looking at, um, I guess, the sexual exploitation um, aspect, it is difficult because under the um, Trafficking in Persons Protocol, um, you know, that's left up to the domestic laws of, of states to decipher um, as to their views and, and enact laws accordingly. I, I guess to ensure um, closer alignment on all of those issues, um, it, it really will come down to taking the, the victim-centric approach um, to, to these matters. At the heart of this, there is a victim, um, irrespective of the form of exploitation, and that there should be you know, legal um, avenues available um, that allow for the communication between the receiving um, and the sending state to ensure appropriate prosecution and protection of the victim. Sally, I might um, ask you about this as well. Um, you know, one of the, the sort of issues as a global issue is the fact that uh, governments have very different priorities, very different um, cultures, very different capacities uh, and so on. So that can be an issue uh, that I guess can limit uh, international cooperation on big global issues. Uh, but I'm glad that Alfonso has um, asked this question because all three panellists have talked about COVID, but it'll be really good to get a sense of how and why COVID uh, has contributed to trafficking and or slavery. So, well, <laughs> it's, it's an ongoing issue, isn't it? I think it's uh, something that, you know, I, I can't leave Australia to do any field work at the moment to um, assess what the impact might be. Uh, so it's a little bit difficult to, to, to sort of say, uh, apart from anecdotally, um, you know, I'll answer it just in, in terms of um, communications that I've been having with some of my former research participants in Singapore uh, who have so men who um, are in or were in situations of, of forced 
labour or extreme labour exploitation in the construction sector uh, and women who uh, were in domestic servitude or domestic paid domestic work situations. So um, the, the impact is really that many migrant workers who are in, who are already in vulnerable situations um, are having their contracts cut short and uh, having to return home, forcibly sort of returning home, um, without necessarily having paid off their migration debts. And so this is something that I think is a wide-ranging issue in a lot of countries in the Asian region, where migrant workers pay a lot of money um, to agencies, um, to facilitate their labour migration and uh, abroad. And they often borrow heavily, very heavily, and go into debt. And when they reach uh, destination countries, they often find that the salary is not uh, as they thought it would be. So it's already very difficult for them to pay off uh, a hefty debt um, and so if their contracts are cut short and they are already struggling to pay off debts and then they return home, that is going to create all sorts of heightened vulnerabilities for those people. So communicating with some of my Bangladeshi uh, participants from my research in Singapore, they really, you know, Money lenders uh, and, and other people, uh, informal labour brokers, uh, harassing them, knocking on their doors day after day, asking where the money is. Uh, and all this time, the interest is growing. So there's no way that they can remigrate. There's no opportunities for them to go abroad. There's, there's nothing. And often the only thing that they have left to sell at this point is land. And so uh, some of the complexities and, and the ripple effects that I see as a result of COVID, uh, when migrant workers who, who have already been exploited financially uh, return home, uh, continuing to bear these debt burdens, and they have to sell the only productive asset that they might have left uh, and therefore, they don't even have a way of uh, achieving subsistence. And so then we get drift to the major cities like Dhaka, um, where there is already huge unemployment um, and a lack of opportunities and, and where there are, you know, in a, in a place like Bangladesh, for example, just severe cases um, of and, and so we have these compounding <laughs> impacts. Um, so that is one thing that I can talk to directly that I see happening um, now as a result of COVID is, you know, what happens to these people when they return home um, and they still are bare, they, their vulnerability is heightened and what impact is that likely to have on re-trafficking um, or vulnerability to other forms of very precarious work. Um, so beyond that, I, I wouldn't like to say too much, um, except that I know that in a place like Bangladesh, 
uh, organ trafficking has really um, increased exponentially in this context in that country. Uh, Jenny, we have a couple of questions on internal trafficking. So I'm wondering whether you can explain uh, the difference between internal and external trafficking, but also whether there are any lessons from external trafficking that might be applied to countering internal trafficking. External and internal. Uh, I'm not sure what exactly is meant by external and internal. Um, I mean, there have been some recent cases of exit offenses uh, that have applied where some where people have been essentially trafficked out for the purpose of forced marriage. Um, I mean, it's, it's funny when you talk about that, right? Because I, I often see, um, and I find government does this, they, they try to have a domestic they talk about the domestic response and they talk about the international response. It's all the same. Like, you know, even, even, um, you know, the national action plan corresponding to it, we're awaiting an international strategy that's supposed to align and line up with it. That's coming from DFAT. And we haven't kind of seen that yet. Um, I don't understand why we don't have one plan um, because the nature of the whole thing is transnational. So it's a transnational, if they say it's a transnational organized crime, well, we should have a transnational organized response. Um, so, I mean, I think if the question is a more, is a little bit about kind of who's vulnerable in Australia, um, I think we're really talking about a range of people on temporary visas mostly and new arrivals and um, asylum seekers and, um, you know, there's quite a, I mean, it's about 10% of Australia's labor force are on temporary visas. And again, if you think about how this is connected to, to COVID as well, these are people that are also, has, have also been left out of support, uh, people who've become really vulnerable. So we've got, I mean, there's just so many different kinds of temporary visas this, that people could be on. Um, but some of the sectors that Sally mentioned, you know, in Australia, you know, horticulture, um, construction, hospitality, um, and these are these are international students, like I said, asylum seekers, um, people on um, sponsored visas, um, seasonal workers um, from the Pacific, whose whose labor is packaged as aid to the Pacific, and who are bonded to their employers. Um, you know, there's there's a whole lot of um, vulnerabilities for people in Australia. You know, Sunil mentioned the for every one known victim, there's three that haven't been identified. Um, I actually think it's more than that. Um, but, um, you know, we, we, can't, we can't not talk about what's going on in Australia and how our own visa system creates vulnerabilities. And, and once you really understand that, then it's kind of clear what some of the fixes are. Um, and the government right now has hundreds of recommendations before it from the hidden in plain sight report that was mentioned earlier, from the migrant workers task force, you know, from inquiries into so many things related to that, that bigger band of exploited labor that has become this normalized concept, oh, well, that's just normal. No, that's what we need to deal with. Like combating modern slavery is combating labor exploitation. That's what we need to be doing. If you're not combating labor exploitation, you're not combating modern slavery. So that's really what we need to be uh, focusing on um, both internally and, and externally. And I know that Australia has dedicated some time and energy to lifting uh, labor standards and, and, and 
advocating for better labor conditions overseas and we're in such a, an important position in the region to do that but we need to be doing more and more and more of that and that needs in my view needs much greater visibility um, because I'm it's it's not to me it's not it's not so visible so I'd like to see a lot more visibility of that and and a lot more yeah kind of bringing together of this international thing and this domestic thing because the nature of my work every day is international when people say to me oh you just you work in Sydney, you work in Australia. No, it's it's international by nature. So I, I'm not sure if that answered the question exactly. Well, we are quickly running out of time. In fact, I think we have run out of time, but I would like the last word to go to Sally. I mean, there was some um, discussion there of the horticultural uh, industry. There is still a question in the Q&A, and I'm sorry to those who uh, have questions that did not get answered in the seminar, but one of the questions did relate to um, fruit and vegetable picking industries. Uh, I know that you've done some work in this area. Um, so how might issues in, in the horticultural industry uh, be addressed? And there is in that question also um, a, a nod to individual responsibility and whether or not we should accept price rises and what, uh, what kind of acceptance there might be of that among the community. Um, okay, thanks, Beck. Well, actually, the, the horticulture um, work is is just commencing. So I don't feel, you know, that I can really say too much about that. What I will say, though, is that um, I, so I am doing a, a small study with um, migrant workers in the Riverina. And that, uh, you know, sort of spans a range of different sectors. And uh, most of the participants uh, to date have been working in uh, aged care, commercial cleaning or meatworks. And most of the ones that I've interviewed to date um, are refugees. And one of the things that they... So, so it's very interesting and I think it'll be interesting to look at the comparison between people on refugee visas and those on, you know, temporary unskilled uh, worker visas and to see if there are differences um, in, in terms of the way that they are able to extricate themselves from exploitative working situations um, to date is that there's just endemic racism uh, in all and across all these sectors that refugee workers have experienced. And that endemic racism um, creates a context in which these workers do not feel confident uh, in discussing grievances or labour issues with a line manager or, or a boss. Uh, nobody is signed up to a, a union there's been no briefing for any refugee migrant worker um, that I've come across about their labour rights. They're all on casual contracts. Um, and we have to use the word contract loosely because they don't actually have written contracts. Um, and many of them don't have very good English. So there's certainly no written agreement or contract in their native language. Um, so there are all sorts of issues here that I think uh, probably spill over into uh, various permutations of uh, labour exploitation and precarious work. But I, I really can't say too much more about that at this point. 
Um, certainly there's a responsibility, I think, to critically look at supply chains um, and consumer responsibility across all these sectors. Um, but I also see the logistical um, quagmire of, you know, <laughs> labelling every single product in the supermarket and actually tracking back the supply chain and, and critically looking at uh, how that can be achieved. I think it's still a mammoth task and one that's largely unfulfilled for most products that we see on our supermarket shelves in Australia. Mm. And we, I have taken us over time, but I would like to thank our panellists, Sally, Jenny and Sunil, uh, and to the audience for watching this Latrobe Asia event. Uh, the webinar has been recorded. If you have registered for the event, you'll be emailed the appropriate links when they are ready. I did notice there was a question in the chat about the National Action Plan, and we can put the link to the National Action Plan in that email. Uh, our next Latrobe Asia event is a live recorded podcast with the Asia Director of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, James Crabtree, and we'll be talking about the future of order in Asia. And that's on the 4th of May at 6pm Melbourne time. So thanks again to our guests. This was a fascinating discussion. We could have gone on for much longer, I feel. Uh, and I'm looking forward to getting back together in two years' time and seeing what progress we've made. Uh, hopefully we'll have uh, positive things to say about Australia's progress and progress internationally. Uh, but in the meantime... Please follow us on Twitter at Latrobe Asia or join our mailing list to find more details for online events and Latrobe Asia publications. Thank you.